0: When COVID arrived in Boston in early 2020, Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program sprung into action. We quickly set up COVID testing tents, we were symptom screening and testing in our clinics and in the shelters, and we were following the positive cases in New York. We knew we had to stop the spread as soon as we could, but testing kits were extremely limited. They took up to 10 days to get results, and we were only testing people who presented with certain symptoms like cough or fever. That all changed in early April when we identified six cases at the Pine Street Inn shelter. It was definitely a cluster, but with just those few positive tests, there was no way to know how widespread the infection was. What we did know was that in a crowded setting, like a congregate shelter, the infection could spread like wildfire. We needed more data fast. Here's Jesse Gata, who was our chief medical officer at the time. Through the course of several hours and
1: a lot of hand-wringing, we sort of figured out that the best thing to do would
0: be to test everybody in the shelter as well as employees. So we asked the state for more testing kits, and they agreed to send them. We immediately set up a mass testing operation at that site. Over the next couple of days, the team tested more than 400 people. We had never done a mass testing event like this in our entire history. At that point, we thought COVID always manifested with symptoms. Since many of the people we were testing had no symptoms, the tests should have been overwhelmingly negative. But that's not what happened.
1: Over the course of a few days, more and more names were coming out of people who
0: were actually positive. Unfortunately, 36% of the tests were positive. 146 positive tests out of 397 people in this one shelter. And most of them were asymptomatic. They couldn't stay at the shelter and risk infecting everyone else, so they had to be told their results and transported to isolation facilities. The patients were roused from their beds and told to dress quickly and assemble in the dining room, where Jesse and Barry Bach, our CEO, would meet them. The first night, I remember
1: going to Pine Street Inn. I think it was 9 p.m. when some of the results were coming back. And, you know, walking into the shelter in full PPE and literally standing up on a chair, trying to explain this crazy scenario. The test that we did a few days ago for each one of you for COVID came back positive. And I know that's a total surprise. It's a surprise to us as well. And that we didn't really understand the the implications of that yet, but that we knew that they needed to be isolated for probably a couple weeks. They were understandably terrified. I look like an astronaut. I'm telling you you have COVID. You feel fine. Or maybe you're beginning to have alcohol withdrawal, so
0: you're beginning to feel agitated and sick. And now Jesse, in full PPE, face mask, face shield, gown, and gloves, tells you you're going to be put on a bus with a doctor you've never met and be driven to a place you've never been. And I think for people who have a lot of mistrust reasonably of all of
1: these systems, the healthcare system, the shelter system, society at large, this was a very
0: difficult pill to swallow. You're listening to COVID in the Streets of Boston, a podcast from the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. I'm Denise de las Nueces. I'm the current chief medical officer at the program, an internist, and an addiction medicine specialist. This is episode two, Respite. There were a few places that the newly diagnosed men from Pine Street Inn Shelter might go. The hospital, if they had severe symptoms and needed acute level care. The tents, if they were in the throes of addiction and could benefit from a less highly structured environment. And the newly created COVID positive ward in our respite program, if they were mildly symptomatic but still in need of 24-hour nursing care. And Jesse, as our chief medical officer, had to figure out who would go where. So I just remember going person to person,
1: spending probably 10 minutes with each person, quickly trying to triage whether they needed hospital, and then trying to help them uh, kind of manage all the anxiety that they had about possibly dying from this infection. A lot of the men in that room had diabetes, heart disease, emphysema,
0: and so there's a lot of worry. One thing that helped alleviate the shelter guests' anxiety was the clinic we'd had in the shelter since 1985. Many of the people Jesse was talking to had long-standing relationships with our nurses. And so just talking to them uh, and identifying ourselves as being from
1: Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, I want to hope that that meant something to some of those people. And even though I might not have been a familiar face to the people at that particular shelter, I think our clinic played a big role in the relationship that they have with people there, played a
0: big role in our ability to um, have some level of trust. By two or three in the morning, Jesse and Barry had gotten almost everyone to agree to come to an isolation facility. For a lot of them, that place was in our newly created COVID-positive ward in our Barbara McGinnis House Respite Program. Our respite program looks like a step-down hospital. It has 104 beds with 24-7 care for patients who are not sick enough for a costly hospital bed, but are still too sick to return to life in the shelters or on the streets.
2: They came to respite, like in the middle of the night, half of them are like, I have no idea where I am right now. Like they had to enter through the basement, which, you know, could use a facelift, then being brought up in some elevator and walking onto some floor. I mean, and then here are these strangers in PPE talking to them. It was hard to hear. There was plexiglass in front of the med cards, and so I think that was hard. My name is Suzanne Armstrong, and I was the director of nursing for our medical respite programs during the the first wave, second wave, and third wave, I guess. Um, And I'm a nurse practitioner with the program. That's how I started.
0: Suzanne joined BHHP in 2006. It was her first nurse practitioner job out of nursing school and she started at a respite program before going to work on our street
2: team, caring for rough sleepers, folks living on the streets of Boston. Which was amazing, being able to care for the rough sleepers with a multidisciplinary team and do a lot of diverse medical practice, outreach, clinic, home visits, checking in on people in hospitals too.
0: In 2016, Suzanne left the street team to return to our respite program as the director of nursing. The respite facility is called the Barbara McGinnis House, named after a beloved nurse who first trained Dr. O'Connell in homeless medicine when he founded Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. The McGinnis House is located on the top two floors in our main building in the south end of Boston, across from the Boston Medical Center. While our patients are in respite, we coordinate their other specialty care, like dental, optometry, dermatology, and any follow-up medical appointments or testing. Ours is the first medical respite program for homeless folks in the country, and even among healthcare institutions, it's truly innovative.
2: We're not a hospital, we're not a nursing home, we're not an outpatient clinic. We are a, a massive ambiguity, and so we just started to think about everything that we do every day in the facility that basically was not gonna work.
0: Our respite program tries to foster a sense of community with communal experiences that are essential to our patients' well-being, but those communal experiences were no longer safe.
3: So much of like what made the community so great upstairs, COVID necessitated disrupting that, like eating in the cafeteria together and all the communal time downstairs, which was like part of what helped people feel comfortable here, that had to go away. Hi, I'm uh, Dave Munson. I'm one of the internists here at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program.
0: As we talked about in the last episode, congregate settings are terrible for infection control. So the team had to completely transform the respite program.
3: So the patients needed to eat. They needed to take showers. There was trash that had to be changed. There were linens that had to be changed. We had to do floors that had to be clean. like all those sorts of things. We wanted to make sure as best we could. And we had to provide good, high quality medical and nursing care. So that's a lot of different types of people to get them to buy in and figuring out how to adapt the processes in that way.
0: And importantly, they had to find a way to separate COVID-positive patients from everyone else.
3: The way that we thought about how to design the space was we looked at the blueprint of the floor. And we probably printed out 50 copies of the blueprint of each floor. And then we tried to model it on... What a, how a negative pressure room is set up. So we have two negative pressure rooms at McGinnis House, which basically has a, a dirty space, an intermediate space, and a clean space. And we just tried to scale it up to what we had. And then we leaned on some colleagues from BMC, Josh Barokas and Nahid Badelia, who helped us kind of through what was possible and what wasn't possible and what was safe and what wasn't safe. And that was invaluable. They were invaluable resources. And Josh continued to be an invaluable resource the whole, the whole experience.
0: When you walk off the elevator on the third floor, there's a nursing station and a hallway to the left and another hallway to the right. Doors on either side of the halls lead to patient rooms, and each room has two to six beds.
3: We designed it in a way where we could scale it up and scale it back because we knew that we would probably have to start small and then we had the idea that, you know, we might have to do the whole floor. And so from the beginning, we were thinking like, okay, like what's this gonna look like if we do the whole floor? And we had a couple different ideas, you know, not really knowing if it was ever gonna play, come into play like that, but, but being, being pretty certain that it would.
0: We had no idea how many beds we would eventually need, but we were watching the numbers closely, especially the lack of available hospital beds. For staff, Dave and his team designated a storage closet as an anteroom where staff could safely change in and out of PPE and minimize the risk of exposure. Once they'd completed the design of the new unit, they enlisted the facilities team to build it.
4: Back then it was serious, so, you know, once they said there's four or five people coming in, that's positive and we need more space. Can we build some more walls? We go get busy building it. This is Dwayne. My name is Dwayne Palmer, and I'm a facility guy.
0: Dwayne has been working at BHHP for more than five years. When someone asks anything of Dwayne, or of any of our facilities team, they are ready to help. Dwayne was used to repairing regular walls, but this task was different. He would be building walls made of thick plastic with zippers for doors that could isolate a deadly airborne virus. These walls were the main thing that kept the COVID virus from spreading outside the COVID unit, so they had to be completely sealed off. There was no room for error.
4: We gotta make sure everything stays tight, no air comes out, you know, so to affect anybody else. So it was it was a little challenging but you know when you get used to something it become easy.
0: Dwayne had a lot of opportunities to practice this new skill. As the virus spread throughout Boston, more and more covid positive patients experiencing homelessness needed to be isolated and so more walls had to be built.
3: The walls that made the sort of the changing space stayed but the end of a ward just kept moving back as we took more and more patients in. and then eventually we took that wall down because we took the whole floor.
0: Before long, the entire third floor was a COVID-positive unit with 52 beds and more than 30 staff. One of the first people Suzanne asked to go into the unit was Bridget Sullivan, the nurse educator.
3: Bridget Sullivan created this amazing like path for people to take on and off their PPE in a way that you know, was intuitive to people that had never really done this before, and in a way that made people feel more safe in the situation where they probably didn't, you know, where there was a lot of uncertainty and fear.
0: Here's one of our respite nurses, Kate Hamilton.
5: There was a part of me that when I first put the PPE on, I was so hot and uncomfortable and kind of terrified that I just was like, well, I I I know I just spent all this time training for this and I know I just got this job and but like I don't know, I might have to quit.
0: <laughs> Kate was still in nursing school when she applied to work at BHHP in early twenty
5: twenty. I became a nurse in February. I got my license, was very excited, got the job in at by the end of February, and then COVID kind of descended upon us at the beginning of March.
0: On the days that Kate was assigned to the COVID ward, she'd arrive, take her temperature, and get ready to don her PPE in that little anteroom that Dave and the team had created.
5: And there was a mirror right before you went in that said like, you're a healthcare superhero or something like that, that you'd like look in and make sure that your mask was right before you went in. And then you go to this plastic door and take the red zipper and unzip it. And then you're like on the COVID ward.
0: Almost as soon as the COVID ward was set up, the patients started arriving, including the men from Pine Street Inn.
3: Oh, that was a crazy day. There was a whole group of admissions that came at like eight o'clock. And then I remember being on the ward and Suzanne sent me a message that said there were like 15 more patients coming. And it was like 1130 at night. and I was like, I was, I thought she was just She's a notorious joker, Suzanne, she's notorious. I was like, she's pulling my leg, like this is like, no way this is the case.
0: Suzanne wasn't joking. The patients started coming in one after the other. As the new patients came off the elevator, the team quickly triaged. If you're really sick, move to one side. If you're okay, go straight to bed. There were just a couple of really sick people in that group, including one patient whose COVID symptoms were audible. It was the first time Dave had heard the disease in someone's lungs.
3: It sounded like Velcro crackles. Like, just like Velcro rubbing together and them wheezing. Like, you know, it's just like, you remember like, oh, this is what it sounds like. It feels like you're finally meeting it or something like that, you know?
0: With all these changes to staff procedure and physical space, patients were experiencing a very different respite than they would have a year before. And it was hard for a lot of them.
2: There were some patients who really struggled who had active opioid use disorder, because I think a lot of those patients aren't used to staying in, in a confined area, in a confined space. And so supporting, you know, someone that is not ready to stop using, but is being forced to go into isolation and inside, it was like, I don't know what else to say to this person. Um, you know, constantly coming out of their room. When can I leave? How many more days? How many more days? I can't believe it's, it's only day three. Like, and I think there were times where people thought like, I just don't know if this person is going to get through this stay.
6: Most
0: people made it through their stays, but it was confusing for both patients in the COVID unit and on the non-COVID floor. Even at the highest levels, there were some questions about COVID that we simply couldn't answer because no one could.
2: We would say things are happening so quickly, like we don't know if this is the right decision, but this is what we think. This is, this, is, this is how we're rationalizing it. This is our thought process. But I think, yeah, I think it was probably hard for people to help alleviate people's fears when they themselves didn't know. But um, I think that's probably the nature of the industry and the profession, um, that you you just kind of learn how to do that
0: new nurses who were just joining in our program had to learn many things all at once. How to be a nurse, how to practice during COVID, and how to care for our uniquely vulnerable population. Those nurses deserve a lot of credit for what they did.
5: I mean, it was really hard to learn about all of these things at once. (laughs) And there was a fair amount of, you know, I would leave and be like, was I a good nurse today? You know? I think that's developmentally normal, but particularly difficult when the
2: pandemic is superimposed on it. Caring for homeless people, I think there's a lot to learn that is just trial by fire, and that just comes with time. I mean, you can teach someone how COVID works and look at the data and this is what you do, and this is how you protect the patient, and this is how you protect, you know. But I think the understanding, the depth of the homeless population and, and how they got there, I think that is just time and experience.
0: Suzanne remembers her first time discharging someone experiencing homelessness from a Guinness house when she was a brand-new nurse practitioner herself. Where would they go if they didn't have a home?
2: The patient was laughing at me because I was, I kept saying, like, you're going, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going outside to the park. And and I, I was so nervous to write, like, discharged to the street. And, you know, the other NPs were like, it's fine. This is, this is, it's okay. But I couldn't believe it. And I was like, are you serious? And he's like, yes, Suzanne, please, like, goodbye.
0: Suzanne finally discharged him, but not without a lot of worrying. She ended up seeing that patient again when he returned to McGinnis for care. And then, when she did medical outreach on her street team, she got to see where he slept when he wasn't in respite. An experience like that really clarifies who our patients are
2: and what they are dealing with. By the time most of the patients have gotten to us, to where we're caring for them in the program, you can imagine where where they've already been. And so, you, you'll you'll hear this from people who maybe aren't as engaged with our patient population, like... You know, I don't understand why, why isn't their family, like why did their family kick them out or, and it's just, there's so many more layers and and it's so much more complicated and more than I I could ever imagine. Um, So, you know, to not think about that piece, but just think about how we're here to give care the best we can for the patient.
5: One of the things that's attractive to me about working at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless is that the social determinants of health are undeniable. So if, you know, you're talking with a patient that has intense childhood trauma, diabetes, hypertension, you know, a foot amputation, and is homeless, we cannot possibly as you know a single organization fix all of these compounding conditions but we can like have a moment of we can have a moment of connection. And as healthcare workers, we can be in a position to be in a room with someone and have time and place to hear their story. And make them feel seen and heard. I remember this one woman that, you know, she's, she's a person who is on the COVID unit. She's isolated. She's sick. She can't go outside for the whole 10 days that she's there. And, but she, she looked at me and she said, I have never been treated so well in my whole life. And I think that that's she's not I mean, she's she's talking about the medical care, but she's also talking about people that look her in the eye and are interested in how she thinks and feels about things, you know. So in some ways, the 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 medical care is, of course, important, but it's also the whole philosophy of the organization that these this population deserves respect and time and energy and is, is like, worthy of that. Not only deserves it, but, like, is worthy.
0: We base our care on building a trusting relationship with our patients and treating them with dignity and compassion. And we know they need much more than just immediate medical attention when they come into respite. A patient might be admitted for wound care or an illness like COVID, but we also work with them to address their behavioral and mental health needs, which are very common, and their housing needs, and connect them to benefits and other social services. And we also give them really good
7: food. We try to give them the best products that we can put out to them, knowing that they may not have had a good meal prior to coming here. I'm Steve Faquin, the Food Service Director and Executive Chef for Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Programs.
0: Steve had been with the program for two decades when COVID hit. He and his team of about 14 full-time staff prepare three meals a day for all the patients in respite, plus bag lunches for others. Before COVID, patients who were ambulatory ate in our communal dining room and built community around the table.
7: They would come in the dining room in line, and they would select something off the menu board, and it was plated up right then there for them. Then come mid-March, we'd have to change all that and feed the patients upstairs in their rooms.
0: Like everyone else, Steve had to completely redesign how he worked.
7: So we had to carry the food up in the back stairs into the edge of the COVID uh, ward there, if you will. And the nursing staff would come out and grab the food and, and bring it into the unit and pass it out to the patients inside that COVID unit.
0: Steve purchased food warming carts so his team could continue to offer patients multiple hot options for each meal and he and his staff went above and beyond in increasing the choices and variety of meals over the course of a patient's day.
7: Anything you can think of, anything from pizzas, steak and cheese, oven-fried chicken, baked fish, spaghetti and meatballs, meatloaf.
0: That made a big difference for our patients who day in and day out experience food insecurity, among many other traumas.
7: You're trying to make a difference in in their lives, and and if you can do that, great, You, you did a good job.
0: With their immediate needs taken care of, patients can focus on getting well.
7: It's really great to see
3: patients in McGinnis House because they are different than they're outside, because they don't have to worry every second of their day about how they're gonna eat and sleep and be safe and somebody's gonna rob me or whatever, you know, and they can just kind of relax, and so you get to see a different side of
5: people. There was a lot of things about working with this population that I was expecting. I was expecting trauma and depression and anxiety and, you know, people that are at the lowest point in their lives but I think the thing I was most surprised by was all of the you know humor and lightness. There was a sense that people were just like living their lives, you know just Putting one foot in front of the other.
0: As the nurses, doctors, kitchen staff, and everyone else in the respite COVID ward was caring for our patients, administrators were working behind the scenes to keep everyone, staff and patients alike, safe from COVID. The most important tool was the personal protective equipment, or PPE.
6: We have gowns that are part of PPE, and there are surgical masks, as well as the KN95 masks and then the N95 masks. And then last but certainly not least is the eye protection. My name is April Ramsey and I'm currently the Associate Director of Clinical Operations for the program. And I'm also covering right now the Interim Director of Nursing role for Medical Respite.
0: April had been with the program since 2011. She started as a nurse at our clinic at the Pine Street Inn then joined the team at the Barbara McGuinness House and worked her way up and across the organization, including working to address earlier outbreaks of meningitis and hepatitis. Early in the pandemic, April took on a new and critical role, managing PPE for the program. April needed to locate and order a high volume of high quality PPE at a time when every healthcare facility in the world was competing for the same limited supply, but she wasn't doing it alone.
6: I was fortunate enough to have the help of Bessie Wright in dental, who was probably our in-house PPE expert unofficially when this all started.
0: Also on the team was Annie Bautista, the new PPE coordinator.
6: And so Annie and Bessie really were the leads in going through all the donations that were coming in through development. Um, Development did a great job of reaching out to some of our routine donors to ask for specific things that we needed because we recognized early on that although folks' hearts were in the right places for wanting to donate supplies, we also really had to be thorough in what we were willing to accept to be sure that it would protect our staff.
0: Once April and her team had brought in and verified all the PPE, they had to get it out to the various clinic, testing sites, and isolation facilities across the program. So April would load up her SUV with supplies and make the rounds. Megan Kruger, an operational nurse in our program, had another way of getting around.
6: If anyone remembers Megan, they know that she was on her bike, through traffic, in all weather, all the time, before COVID and during COVID. She had her big old backpack and she would stuff supplies in and sometimes be able to get to places faster than I could in my car with Boston traffic.
0: (laughs) As the weeks wore on, new guidelines came out for how to safely extend the use of PPE. Instead of replacing their N95 masks each time they enter or exit a space, a clinician might now be able to keep their mask in a plastic container during a break or put their face shield in a paper bag. And there was another major development.
6: One of the other ways that we were able to preserve PPE supply was shifting from using all disposable gowns to using some cloth gowns that we were able to launder specifically for the needs that we had up in respite.
0: They contracted with a local laundry service.
2: They were amazing. They would come and turn around scrubs and gallons in 24 hours. We would text this guy every day, this guy Bruce, and say we were low and he would have his staff do another load and he would drop them off at like 5 in the morning for us.
0: But that vendor was closed on the weekends, so someone from our organization stepped up.
4: The nurses, they really needed the PPE, and there was no no one around else to do it.
0: This is Dwayne Palmer again from Facilities, whose team built the walls to the COVID unit. Dwayne volunteered to spend his Saturday shift each week washing enough gowns and scrubs to last the nurses until Monday.
4: Once I come in Saturdays, I'll be like, I'm on it. From 7 in the morning, if it takes me till 7 in the evening, you know. Once, one washing, I'm over here folding, waiting on the other load. When, when I'm finished folding, I put back in the machine again, you know, just to keep me going for the whole day.
0: Dwayne himself was wearing full PPE as he washed and folded. After all, the gowns and scrubs he was washing were potentially covered in the coronavirus.
4: The only time I was uncomfortable is when I have to open the bag because, you know, I don't know, poof, what's going to, you know, if that's sent from the bag or whatever in the bag, I don't know what COVID is. You can't see it. So I'm always like, damn, I wonder if when I open the bag, I'm going to catch it.
0: The clinical staff was extremely grateful for Dwayne's contribution because without PPE, they couldn't do their jobs.
4: Sometime I go up there and, And the weekends and they're on the last bag and when they see me coming up with like four or five big bags they would be like oh thank you so much because we didn't know what we was gonna do and i took that into consideration and you know makes me want to do more you know so that's how i get through it togetherness you know
0: despite all the precautions our staff couldn't escape covid entirely
2: We had a core group of staff who were constantly working on the unit, and I would say it went through a lot of them. And that's when I think we probably there were some people who maybe their ideal situation at home wasn't lending themselves to work on the COVID floor. But I think everyone recognized like, oh, this is this is actually just going to happen.
0: When staff members did get COVID, they had to stay isolated at home for 14 days, which caused real complications for the people who were staffing different sites.
6: With the supplies, it's pretty straightforward. You either have it or you don't. (laughs) The staffing for the COVID spaces was a little more complicated.
0: Sharon Tan did the staffing for respite, but April and her team handled the staffing for our other clinical sites. We run over 30 clinics throughout the city that are embedded in the shelters.
6: I had a lot of different calendar printouts with a lot of crazy notes on it, but we also had Evan Lu and Sanju Nembang were amazing behind the scenes helping with staffing. They were remotely working I don't even know how many hours to ensure that we had staffing in all of these locations.
0: Unlike supplies, staff members can't just be deployed to fill a need because they have families and needs of their own.
6: For some staff, it was especially challenging when they had to make those decisions around coming to work when they know they're working in a high-risk space, but also maybe having loved ones or folks that you live with that may be vulnerable and, and COVID might have significant impact to them. And so I think in hindsight, Everyone could have used an extra dose of support. <laughs> um, but I think we did the best that we could in the spaces that we were to, to try to rally um, both morale, but also just hope that we were filling these gaps um, for our patients, even though it may have felt like we didn't exactly know what the plan was.
0: With so many staff members across so many sites, communication was a struggle. Our leadership team communicated to Respite and other facilities about testing strategies, which impacted the number of patients that might be admitted. Meanwhile, researchers were discovering new things about how the virus was mutating, and the CDC and the state were issuing new guidelines around
2: transmission and PPE. Things were changing so quickly, and sometimes things would change from the morning until the afternoon, until the night, and so we had to make sure everyone was communicating. Like, I know we said this this morning at, 7 a.m., but actually tonight at 7 p.m. is completely different.
0: It was a constant roller coaster.
6: And so we had recognized that we needed to keep staff aware of where we were on that roller coaster ride. And so we did have daily staff calls and sometimes several emails daily to staff with updates around what the plans were and how they may have changed since the previous communication. And knowing that there were a lot of questions that we couldn't answer, so answering the ones that we could in the most tangible way possible, hopefully was supportive and also realistic for staff around what to expect in the coming days or weeks.
0: Those constant updates and regular changes to both procedure and scientific knowledge were yet another variable for the nurses on the floor.
5: It was a great opportunity to do the best you could with the information that you had and to place emphasis on being flexible and adaptable and able to quickly change the way that things are done.
0: Thanks to everyone's adaptability and persistence, we were able to keep our team supported, our site staffed, and our PPE robustly stocked. Except for once in November of 2020, when April was running low on one important item.
6: I did have to go to my boss and say, I'm nervous that we're going to run out of gloves and I have a couple of solutions, but if none of those work out, then I'm really not sure what we're going to do.
0: She was pushing on one vendor in particular, hoping they could send a shipment of 30,000 gloves. Huge for us, but a drop in the bucket compared to what the nearby hospitals were using.
6: I just sort of explained how our need for PPE was expanding as we were filling these gaps for patients. And, you know, I was able to just really reinforce our desperate need (laughs) and just explain all that we were doing to try to not overload our hospital systems or our community partners.
0: If we didn't have gloves, we couldn't care for our patients. And if we couldn't care for our patients, the burden of isolation would fall onto our hospital partners who were already stretched and at full capacity.
3: You would have been faced with a situation where all these people affected with COVID would be either like outside, like sleeping outside on the street, or they would have been in the emergency room or something like that, which is crazy. You can't like emergency rooms have, hospitals have enough on their plate to have, like, you know, asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic COVID positive people there.
0: The vendor finally agreed. Now it was just a matter of making sure the gloves actually arrived before our supply ran out. And to make matters more stressful, April was about to be out of the office for three weeks.
6: I had taken some time off uh, to get married. And so one of the, few things that I asked to be notified of during my time away was that the gloves had arrived. And so fortunately, when they got here, Megan Kruger did text me and let me know that they had arrived. And then I was able to sort of rest a little easier for my wedding and honeymoon, knowing that the nurses that I was supporting and the rest of the clinical folks had, had the gloves that they needed. For some reason, it always does work out for us, and I don't know if that's just because we're doing the right thing and and the the good stuff follows us. Um, but it was, I think I go back to it takes a village to do anything, and so similarly with PPE, it took a village to not only obtain it but to get it out to sites and to make sure that folks had the most up-to-date information on how to use it. And just really grateful for everyone that stepped up to figure out those processes and to keep our staff safe.
0: That's how we got through all of it, especially in those first couple of waves before we had a vaccine for COVID or medications to treat it. Our village included everyone from facility staff to kitchen staff, to respite aides, providers, case managers, security officers, dental and front desk staff testers and pharmacists, behavioral health specialists, and many more. And the nurses, who, whether they knew it or not, had been preparing for a moment just like this, and who truly saved the day for all of us.
2: The core of nursing was brought out by this pandemic and and what you go into the profession to do, which is, it sounds, I mean, when you say to help people, it sounds so, I don't want to sound like, generic but I think it is it's like a calling really and you could see it when someone just decides to go onto the floor and they don't question it right you just kind of have that that drift or that urge like you you couldn't help yourself from getting involved I think
0: That urge to get involved ran through all the nurses at every level of the organization.
5: There is a saying in nursing that nursing eats their young. And I found that there was not a whiff of that at BHCHP during the pandemic. There was a culture that you could always talk about your, <laughs> your fears, your worries, and that the senior nursing staff, Suzanne and Bridget and April, were going to do the best they could to provide whatever you needed to feel safe.
0: By transforming McGuinness House, we were able to continue to care for our patients with dignity and compassion, and do our part to support the broader healthcare infrastructure in Boston.
3: We were playing a role that no one else was playing at that time. You know, there were you would have people who were, who were experiencing homelessness, who had COVID, who, who didn't need to be, they didn't need oxygen, they didn't need a breathing tube, they had no indication to be in the hospital, and there was no place for them to go. And so, you know, creating a space that allowed those people to be somewhere safe where they could isolate, where they would minimize the risk of infecting other people was, no one else was doing that for for this population, for our population. And, you know, we did as much as we could do of that at McGinnis House. And then when the numbers got bigger than we could do, because we, um, you know, we only had 104 beds, then the program created Boston Hope.
0: Hope, that's what we promise to give our patients and trust and dignity and respect. In our next episode, we'll talk about Boston Hope, a 1,000-bed field hospital constructed inside the cavernous Boston Convention and Exhibition Center, where Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program managed 500 beds for our patients experiencing homelessness. Don't miss it. Subscribe to COVID in the Streets of Boston wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Galen Beebe and directed by Sarah Pacelli. It was sound designed, mixed, and mastered by Jack Pombriant. Music from the Epidemic Sound Library and Jack Pombriant. Thanks to our intrepid BHHP team, especially Barry Bach, Jesse Gaida, Omar Marrero, April Ramsey, Dave Munson, Suzanne Armstrong, Steve Paquin, Dwayne Palmer, and Kate Hamilton. We are grateful to our IT staff for helping to keep the engine running. Our deepest thanks to all staff members who worked in the COVID respite unit in full PPE at a time when there was so much unknown and frightening about the virus. The nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors, case managers, social workers, and facility staff who donned their PPE fearlessly unzipped the COVID unit door and entered that unit to do their jobs. We are grateful to all our staff who care for our courageous patients and those who support the caregivers. Our kitchen staff, our dedicated board of directors, our remarkably kind donors, many who give without ever meeting a single staff member or patient. We're thankful for your trust. Thank you to our 30 plus shelter partners, hospital partners, including Boston Medical Center and Mass General Brigham, Dr. Josh Barakas, the Boston Public Health Commission, the City of Boston, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Mass Design, and to the restaurants and individuals who brought our tired staff nourishing meals. And of course, we thank our resilient patients who have had so many setbacks in their lives, but continue to teach us every day about our shared humanity. And thank you for listening.